1: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
0: Hello and welcome to Red Box, the politics podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Jolly. In this special episode, I'm going to try to get to the bottom of a question which has been bugging people in Westminster for some time. What is going on with the pound? Why does the value of sterling drop every time a minister says something about Brexit, which we think we've heard before. Who is making those decisions in the city? And how much attention do they really pay to every utterance of politicians here in Britain and around the world? I've hopped on the tube from Westminster to Bishopsgate and the offices of Hendon Global Investors. I'm here with Paul O'Connor, head of multi-asset at Henderson. He and his team currently have £4.8 billion of assets under their watchful eye. Now, Paul, let's start at the very beginning. Treat me like an idiot if you We'll we'll get on in a moment into the finer points of the rise and fall of sterling. But just explain to me, what you do on a daily basis in this glorious glass building that we're in? Okay. I'm
2: a fund manager. I run multi-asset funds. And like all other fund managers, my job is ultimately about investing our client money in the financial markets and trying to get the best level of return we can for our clients, commensurate with the level of risk that clients want to take. So. Um, If you look at a house like Henderson here, you'll see we have all different types of funds. We have equity funds, which just invest in stocks and shares. We have bond funds, which just invest in government bonds. We have some regional specific funds um, that cater for different types of clients. Some clients might want a more targeted investment in small cap UK companies, or some will want a much broader global investment. The sort of funds I run invest in everything. So multi-asset funds will invest in stocks and shares, in bonds, government bonds, corporate bonds, currencies, commodities, and we're very
0: global. So talk me through what you do on a, on a day-to-day basis. Okay. What you, when you get in in the morning, what does your day involve? A,
2: a normal day involves trying to understand, first of all, what's priced into markets. And we have a lot of markets to look at. You know, in my desk, we're obviously looking at all of the you know, global markets, um, Asia, US, Europe, Japan. We're looking at all sorts of different assets. We're looking at the macro news to see what's evolving in terms of the data, what data have come out overnight. Um, We're looking at the the, the cross-relationship between different markets, you know, if if a currency moves here, it will tend to have implications for how other markets move. Increasingly, we're looking at political news as well, we're looking at sector news. So there's a huge amount of news to absorb, and our job is really to understand the extent to which the news that we're picking up each day affects our our view upon the future, and hence uh, whether or not markets should be moving to price in a different world than the one we we were we thought we were facing when we went to bed last night.
0: So if somebody comes to you as a customer and says, I've got X number of pounds I want to invest, yeah. your job is always to maximise that, and you do that with a whole mixture of things around the world because it's a multi-asset fund. And you, you obviously want to make sure that nothing's happened overnight, which is yes. going to affect those, yeah. some of those investments. Yeah, th- that's right. And, and, and some of it is about
2: managing risk. Yeah, It's about understanding where there might be frailties in the world or frailties in financial markets. And some of it is about um, picking up opportunity. You know, Sometimes markets will go in a panic. That can be a very attractive time to buy. Or sometimes we might feel that markets are underestimating some positive dynamic, You know, underestimating some pickup in macro momentum. And that can give you a positive um, upside. So yeah in, in a sense it's about it's about maximizing the return but subject to an you know an appropriate level of risk and and for example on our desk we we run different types of funds each of which would have a dis, a different risk mandate and so clients would know if you were a cautious client you would have the cautious fund or if you were a client you had a higher a higher um Risk appetite, and hence one to, it could expect to make a higher level of return. You take the higher risk fund. You gamble, but you win
0: more. Potentially. Well,
2: you, you you invest more. <laughs> you, invest, uh, you invest.
0: carefully, um, and it's you know it's well managed by professionals like us. And so, how much attention are you paying to what goes on in Westminster, or is going on in Westminster at the moment? Um, quite a lot, actually. Um,
2: and I'd say it's an interesting feature. Of the last years, I think we began to focus a lot on on politics. I'd say if I went back to the post crisis markets, the post crisis markets were all about the central banks. You know, if, if I if I could have predicted one thing, in you know the last five or six years, uh, if I could have been able to predict one thing, central bank behaviour would have been the one thing to get right because central bank behaviour totally drove markets. If I look back then throughout my whole career, and I've been doing this stuff for you know nearly thirty years, I'd say. The last three decades, markets have been very driven by macro, by economic data, by the actions of the central banks, by perceptions of global growth, inflation and interest rates. Politics has actually played quite a small part. You know, and I I know in my career, we'd stand around the TVs watching the budget. um, It would have an impact on the markets for a few hours. And by the next day, we'd be back looking at the economic data in the central banks. And I'd say politics has had very little impact on financial markets for most of the last three decades. I think the bigger picture was one of um, globalization and deregulation and liberalization. Since markets were liberalized and politicians got out of the way, I think 2016 was a very big punctuation mark in those trends. In fact, I would say it's a reverse of the trend. I'd say the pickup in political risk and market focus on politics that we saw in 2016, I don't think it's a blip, I think it's a start of a new regime. And I'd say going forward from here, Politics is going to play a very central role in, in what markets, uh, in, in the attention, you know, the things that we need to give attention to. I think going forward from here, we're going to need to think about the macro stuff, as we always did, what central banks were doing, but we're going to need to give quite a lot of our time to understanding what politicians are doing as
0: well. So, one of the um, striking things, and one of the things <coughs> which certainly gets latched onto by uh, politicians and political journalists in Westminster to try to make sense of <coughs> what's happening, is what's happened with the pound. So, yeah. immediately after the Brexit result, the pound fell. And then at various points we've had quite dramatic changes uh, around sort of key points where the Prime Minister said something or a minister has said something. To what extent are those utterances being closely watched or are people reading things into the markets which aren't really there? I think um, in all
2: markets there's always an element of noise and overreaction as as well as the the trend. And actually our job is really to try and filter out the noise from the signal, which is really quite a complicated job because the the fundamentals are changing in real time. So, you know, it's always hard to to fully separate the two. But I think Briggs is quite an interesting example of um, the the, the power of politics now on markets because we can look at the referendum vote and going into the vote, there are lots of ways we we could calibrate this expectation. You can look at what the bookies were telling you, what the polls were telling you, Everyone went into the – well, not everyone, but most people went into the vote thinking um, the vote was going to go the other way. So we had a genuine political shock, and we could see the impact was most clearly visible in what Sterling did. Within a couple of weeks, Sterling was down 10 or 15%. And I think the second move we've seen post-Brexit – you know, so it fell 10 or 15%. That was the shock, and we can come back and talk about what the markets were focusing on. But I'd say the other – then it bobbled around during the summer. We didn't learn much during the summer. All we had to go on was Brexit means Brexit – until we got to the October Tory party conference. And I think we had, we had another leg down in the pound then, maybe about 5% after Theresa May spoke, because I think markets interpreted her comments then to signal that we were moving for, we were moving, I think that was when we first heard about the March objective yeah. for, for triggering Article 50. And I think markets interpreted that as suggesting the, uh, the, the possibility of having a transitional deal with small and we were likely to move into a quicker Brexit and probably a harder Brexit as a result. So I'd say what markets have been calibrating over that period, and those two big moves, we've had a lot of you know twists and turns and saying, but there I think with the big moves was effectively moving from on June the 22nd, thinking there was going to be no Brexit, to thinking there's probably going to be a Brexit, which they priced in the first couple of weeks, and then I think the move that we saw in october was increasing the probability of market's perceptions of the probability of a harder brexit and i'd say most of the moves since then have been about small adjustments to that that view you know when we had the high court um, case in october the pound rallied a little bit sorry in december yeah. when the high you know the high court said the government couldn't push on the pound rallied a few percent because markets were then thinking there's a possibility that this will be delayed a bit and hence the probability of a soft Brexit went up a little bit, so the pound moved the other way. And you could say at the moment the pound is acting as a barometer of market perceptions of um, the sort of Brexit we're going to get, and I'd
0: say right now it's priced for a fairly hard Brexit. It was interesting that immediately after Theresa May's big Brexit speech, where she set out her full 12 priorities, full themes, and it covered a whole load of areas, although that... felt like it pointed towards a hard Brexit yes. because it was a big package and she was quite clear on a lot of areas. It felt like that was giving certainty. Is that... Is
2: yes, I, fair, I, I think so. And I think, I think actually... I, I think it was. I think there was quite a lot of information in that. We didn't really uh, learn a lot from um, the date of the vote until October. We learned a little bit then at the Tory party conference. I think we learned a lot more then by the time we got to that, that more recent speech. I'd say, though, the market impact was quite small around that because, in a sense... She was just putting in the details that um, she was filling in the details of the message that she'd give very clearly at the Tory Party Conference. You know, I think if we compare the two, you'd say the spirit of the two and the direction she was pointing was very clear. It was just a little bit more granular. Well, so I don't think the message changed. I think
0: it was just more. And it was was sort of firming up assumptions that were already built in. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And then little things like when somebody like David Davies is at the dispatch box and he said. he might signal one way or the other about leaving the single market, and there were, there were perceptions of that of a reaction in the markets. Is that really the case?
2: Um, I, I can't remember that specific one, but I think there will be. I think what you will see here is the markets will be, um, and I think this is a change for markets. You know, I think if you if you, if you spoke to currency traders or people like myself who who take currency risk in, in, in our own multi-asset funds, pre-Brexit. Most of the things we thought about were, were about growth and central banks and stuff. We didn't really care about politicians it didn't have much of an impact. I think here because the political decisions are going to have such a big impact on the economy, I think we will be paying attention to what politicians say if they matter. yeah, you know, the, the, the politicians who are in control. So I think markets will constantly be recalibrating their expectation of you know what the economic future is, what sort of breaks are we going to get and what impact it's going to have on um, on the economy. So for example, there have been various discussions, I think David Davis might have made one of the, uh, t- touched on this topic at one stage, about a transitional deal. Oh. You know, that, that has kind of ebbed and flowed as a theme. I think that's a theme markets will be very sensitive to because I think the central case for markets at the moment is, I'd say the consensus central case is we're gonna have a Brexit, um, so we're going to trigger Article 50 around March, we'll be out of the EU, um, two years after that. We're not really sure what kind of trade deal we're going to get. We're not really sure if there's going to be a meaningful transitional deal beyond that. I think there's some sort of belief that there'll be some sort of transition for the finance sector and some specific sector-specific deals elsewhere. That's the central case. And I think any political news that might challenge any of those assumptions, whether positively or negative, I think markets will react to. I think what markets won't react to is just people filling in the details of things we already know. I think yeah. if you take that as a central case, I think anything that points to a softer, harder Brexit, then that will probably move the pond. And other financial markets as well.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass." From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk.
0: It's sort of strange because we end up talking about the markets like it's a person, but, you know, it's lots of people. You know, it is human beings, ultimately. But is the sort of central view, that the market view, that Brexit is bad?
2: I think um, the, the simplest way to answer it is if we looked at the consensus growth forecast for the UK before the referendum and after. What you see is, and the consensus forecast just takes up all the economists in the city and you know academics, there's maybe 20 or 30 of them. If you average their forecasts, on the 22nd of June, it, the, the forecast was for UK growth this year to be 2.2%. That's now down to 1.2. And the forecast for next year had been, been lowered as well. And I'd say, if we think of the growth impact, I think the markets, markets, are, markets are pricing in a scenario fairly close to what the economists are telling you which is that Brexit is going to subdue growth for the next few years, for a handful of years. It, the conference is very limited on this yeah. stuff, you know. But for the, for the next few years, um, no one thinks the UK is going to plunge into recession, but nobody thinks that, you know, this is going to, we're going to move this thing unnoticed. I think the, the, the sense is that the uncertainty will erode corporate confidence a bit, that uh, there'll be some foreign direct investment that will leak away, or some companies might relocate a bit, there'll be a slowing and hiring investment. So that will that will erode the job market a little bit. And also the consumer confidence will be hit a little bit. First of all because the job environment will deteriorate a little bit. It's more attritional than a big you know big one off big step. shock big yeah. shock. Yeah. And also there's some other smaller effects like um inflation's picking up and that begins to erode people's real wages. It's almost like a tax yeah. when inflation picks up. It started with Marmite and it's broadened <laughs> out. You know, but that notion that yeah. the, the, when the price of your shopping basket goes up, it erodes your real wages. So that'll chip away at consumer real spending as well. And I'd say the central case is, is a sort of blend of these kind of yeah. themes about little attritional factors, a bit less confidence, a bit less hiring, a bit less investment, and it'll chip away at growth. So I'd say the market has moved from thinking before the vote that the next few years growth will be two percent a year or so. Into thinking we're going to spend the time bouncing around at a, you know something closer to one percent. Is,
0: is that the Nike tick or the hockey stick yes. that yes. Boris Johnson would talk about? That you know a short term hit while we muddle through getting out of the EU. But, but you know he argues that there's then potential for stronger growth afterwards. Is Yeah, is,
2: yeah. yeah well, it, it does, it's an interesting theme about the timing because I actually think if you asked. You know, if you brought 20 economists or 20 investors or t- 20 people at random, actually, in and ask them what they thought the, the economy would be like 10 or 15 years after leaving Brexit, I think most people would say there's no reason to believe that the UK economy can't do well. Um, I think the uncertainty... You know, but wh- why should it not be able yeah. to? You know, it's a very flexible economy with a good workforce. Ultimately, we can once we've got the trade deals together, there's no reason why the UK can't function well. I think most people believe that. I think the uncertainty... And the the, the the breadth of views is much more about what's year two, three, four, and five going to be like? Um, will we have a trade deal in year three? or Will we be on, on WTO? How's the city going to function? And I think that's where the concern is. I think that's where the uncertainty is. I think most people feel that, look, once we've got these trade deals sorted, whether it's in two years as the optimists think or 10 years as the pessimists think, once you've got those sorted, the economy will be, will be fine. I don't think there's much dispute with that. It's much more about... What's year three, four, five going to be like? And I think that in turn is very
0: much a function of what sort of trade deal we're going to get and we know very little about that. How significant is it for you the the politics of Brexit and what drove that? We're seeing that in America and France, potentially Germany, Holland. Presumably that's something that you're constantly monitoring as well. It is and I think
2: in a way, if we look at what's behind, you know, what drove Brexit, what drove the election result in the states um, what drove some of the you know some of the fringe movements that we're seeing gathering all around Europe you know in, in almost every country in Europe you've got some fringe party from the extreme left or right with you know anti anti-establishment parties yeah. of different flavors i think there are so, some common threads i think one of them is about inequality you know this has been a fantastic three or four decades to be an investor um but as we can see from a lot of the work that's been done in the last few years about if you look at income distribution and um, wage distribution, we can see there's quite a lot of people have been left behind by globalization. It's been a great time to be an investor. It's been a difficult time for lots of parts yeah. of, the, of the world, and I think we're seeing a whole swirl of different themes coalescing. You know, it's um, it's about anti-austerity. It's about inequality. It's in turn feeding into sort of populist anti-establishment movement, nationalisation, anti-globalisation. There's a whole swirl of these things coming together. I think the relevance for financial investors, though, is that these things are beginning to chip away at the establishment, and obviously we've seen that in a big way in the UK with the Brexit vote, a big surprise, big change. We've seen the same thing in the US, most energetically, and we've we a long way to go till we really understand the full consequence of the new administration. And of course it's there as a political risk in Europe as well. So. I think um, the forces that give us Brexit and give us Trump are forces that seem that they've got some life to them. And I think these things will provide a lot of political energy for the next few years that are going to, th- that are going to be things we need to really think about in the markets, in- just as we have to think a lot about Trump and Brexit. And I think even those things were, were, were at the early stages of evaluating the impact of both of them.
0: Because, I mean, particularly f- for you, if you're looking at things globally, you could isolate, you know, if Britain's having trouble because of getting through Brexit, you could look elsewhere, but actually, if these forces are playing out around the world as well, it's a it's a more widespread.
2: Yeah, that's right. I, I, they're everywhere. It's not just a UK yeah. story. I mean, Brexit was obviously the big story of last yeah. year. Well, until Trump came. <laughs> but you know, there, there are also interactions of these things. You know, we think there will be geopolitical ramifications of the new administration in the states. You know, who knows what the trade implications are going to be of Trump's policy? Who knows what the relations between China and the US will be like? So I think there'll be secondary consequences as well. And that's why I think. You know this notion that politics is back in a big way for financial investors. I, I I think it's a very you know I think it's a it's an opinion that's based on quite a lot of observations. It's not just about Brexit.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's around the world. And it, you you touched on the, the this idea of inequality and uh, you know the people who felt left behind and they were um, they were seen as being responsible part yeah. of the Brexit vote, but also the Donald Trump. Result. There's a lot of thinking going on in Westminster about that, and politicians feeling yeah. uh, a bit under fire for being out of touch, yeah. liberal elite and all that. Is that is there a similar feeling in the city?
2: I think I think everybody recognises that when you when you step back and look at the big picture, um, that you can see. That a significant popular a significant part of the population in in the US and particularly in the UK probably in the most liberalized economies have actually suffered most um, and i think there's a recognition that things are going to change politically and economically as well and i think one interesting um, manifestation of the change that we're already seeing taking place is in fiscal policy you know if we'd had this conversation a year ago we'd have we'd have spoken about um there's gonna be more austerity that's planned in the UK. You know, George Osborne had that in his budget. There was more austerity planned in the US. Austerity was still taking place in Europe. Um, there's been quite a big change in fiscal policy throughout the last year all around the world. And I think there's a recognition that, look, most of the post-crisis environment was about monetary policy. You know, QE, cutting interest rates. That was great for markets. It didn't do an awful lot for the man in the street. I think we've exhausted monetary policy. And I think one of the side effects of monetary policy was it probably didn't help. It probably didn't do a lot for equality. You know if you were an investor, you did very well out of it. If you were a low income worker, it didn't do an awful lot for you. I think fiscal policy and the move towards fiscal easing is the start of that balance beginning to get redressed. And it's quite interesting. if you look at low if you look in the major economies, I think we had five years in a row of fiscal tightening, and last year was the first year we saw fiscal easing, and I think. In the UK, we saw the austerity was scrapped. We've seen Trump coming in on the same ticket, talking about fiscal easing. We've seen a bit of the same in Japan and in different parts of Europe as well. I think from a market perspective, that's one, one sort of side effect of these movements is we're probably going to see a bit more fiscal easing, which will be one tool I think governments will use to begin to redress the balance. But I have a feeling when you look at the numbers, this, where we're starting from, that there's
0: a fair bit more to do in that regard. Uh, Paul, it's so interesting. Thank you so much for uh, talking to through that. As ever, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device and sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. Uh, but for now, for me, Matt Jolly, and Paul O'Connor, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.